evidence and answers. Has science refuted miracles in the supernatural? Many in our culture today believe that science and belief in miracles are incompatible. At the 2023 Evidence and Answers Conference, Christian philosopher Dr. Richard Howe explained the limits of science and why it does not eliminate miracles or the supernatural. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today's teaching is taken from the 2023 Evidence and Answers Apologetics Conference. Pat hosts this conference each year and brings out Christian scientists and speakers from across the country. Dr. Richard Howe asks the question, has science refuted miracles in the supernatural? Now let's get right into part one of this fascinating discussion. So I want to show you before we get too much farther. You know, last night, Dr. Ross, it impressed me, and I'm, I can't imagine it didn't impress everybody that didn't already know this, that he was started studying and reading books on astronomy when he was seven years old. Okay, so look, I'm not a chimp up here. So I think when I was about seven years old, I was beginning to delve into a little bit of astronomy myself. Okay, so, and by the way, he mentioned, you know, we talked a lot about dark energy, dark matter. Is that the same thing, dark energy, dark matter? Okay. Well, you've heard a lot about dark matter. I, I found this cartoon, which I thought was funny. It says, along with antimatter and dark matter, we've recently discovered the existence of doesn't matter, <laughs> which appears to have no effect on the rest of the universe. So I quickly, though, morphed and moved on from my delving into astronomy by being a fan of Lost in Space those of you who are old enough to remember that, and then began to do philosophy eventually, got interested in philosophy. The serious side of this was that I lost my faith as a college student at a Baptist college that was steeped in liberalism. My church didn't prepare me for what I was going to encounter, so I wasn't even raised in the church. I didn't really start going until my mid-teens, going to church, so I had no idea there were theological controversies over the integrity and the inerrancy of the Bible and things like that. So that blindsided me. I lost my faith. It was apologetics that brought me back to the faith. Names that you would probably recognize, people like Josh McDowell or R.C. Sproul, are the one that meant the most to me outside my family, was Norm Geisler, who was my mentor. I was basically a groupie for Norm Geisler when I was a student at Dallas Theological Seminary before I got kicked out. No, I didn't get kicked out. But back in the 80s, there wasn't a lot of options to study apologetics in seminaries like there are today with a number of good schools, the best of which is Southern Evangelical Seminary that you can, <laughs> you can enroll in. Given the fact that there wasn't a lot of opportunities to formally study apologetics, and I had interrupted my studies in, in Dallas Seminary and was basically just working full-time living in Dallas, kind of going nowhere, and Dr. Geisler gave me the best advice that anyone could have given me at that time, and that was, you need to go back to the university and do philosophy. So that's what I did. Because he knew then what I learned later, that though not everything in apologetics is philosophical, just like not everything's mathematical or not everything's geological, they all, a lot of different disciplines flow into apologetics. He knew a lot of things were philosophical. So that's what I did. I, I left Dallas. I went to a back, basically, my home state of Mississippi. Went to, you know, by the way, Mississippi, a lot of people don't know this about Mississippi. In Mississippi, if you get a divorce, you're still cousins. Okay. So it doesn't, it doesn't break, just in case you didn't know. All right. 
And recently, a tornado went through Mississippi. It did like $400 million worth of improvement. So, you know, I know, I'm from there. I can throw the stones. But seriously, did you know, and I had nothing to do with this statistic, Mississippi, last time I checked, was the lowest per capita income of the 50 states. But it's the highest per capita in charitable giving of the 50 states. What I thought, well, that's, that's kind of cool. So now I'm having to delve into philosophy, only taken very little of it in undergraduate and really didn't understand a lot of it, didn't really have a grasp on it. So what I commend to people is if you're going to start, do like I did, and really start at the bottom. So my first four-way was Plato, here's a who, which was really, really fun, followed by uh, Green Eggs and Aristotle. So that, those two really got me going in doing the philosophy. Now, if you get the joke about who authored each of these, Dr. Spusippus and Dr. Pythias, then you can come tell me, say, hey, I, I get the joke about who Spusippus was and who Pythias was. But what are we going to talk about? Has science refuted miracles in the supernatural? No, it has not. Okay, any questions? <laughs> Good night, everybody. Thanks for coming this week. <laughs> I got the easy one. <laughs> I can do that. Now, again, for the two people who weren't here last night, I want to show you how to get a PDF deck of the slides of this particular presentation. So you'll want to go to richardghow.com, and you'll see at the top there a resources tab. You may not can see that, but there's a tab on the top that do resources. And that'll take you to a whole thing of uh, PDF slide decks. But really, to get this one today, because it's not even on the master list, you see how that's blinking, their little badge? Because the big badge you see, Christianity Science, will be gone in a few days as I update the front page. But that one will stay there. When you click on it, it'll give you just our page here for the conference. And so you can see the two presentations I've done, Evidence for God, and then the one we're about to see. Also, the deck of a presentation I did earlier in our trip here over on Molokai on what about those who've never heard the gospel. You can get that, as well as a video, five-minute testimony of my wife, Rebecca, there she is back there, and how God has used uh, her life and the suffering that she's endured with her condition to really build bridges and open up opportunities, largely within the medical community where we live. So it's, been, it's a great testimony. And then I put some related presentations. I'm going to put some more up there. So look at this maybe in the near future. Just kind of revisit it every so often, and you might be able to find some things uh, there that are relevant to, uh, to there. Now, People often ask a philosopher, I would suspect, what is philosophy? Well, exactly what is that? And the best definition I ever ran across, this is not original with me, is saying, well, first of all, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Did you know a tomato is a fruit? I don't even know what the definition of a fruit is, but apparently the fruitologists have told us that tomatoes are fruit. Well, then wisdom is knowing not to put tomatoes in a fruit salad. Okay, Just because it's a fruit doesn't mean it's, it's good for a fruit salad. So, philosophy then would be wondering whether this makes ketchup a smoothie. Okay, So, if those kind of questions plague you, then you might be a philosopher, or at least a budding uh, philosopher. Just a few terms. When we say a science refuted miracles in the supernatural, let's just look at a few of these terms just to give us sort of some boundaries within which to work. Supernatural, sometimes... Some use the term supernatural to refer not only to God, but to any spiritual or immaterial being or action. Thus, according to this usage, the supernatural would include beings and actions of God as well as angels and the paranormal or the demonic. They would all just be called supernatural. In fact, if you typed in 
supernatural, you'll probably get a lot of thumbnails from various movies and TV shows all having to do with paranormal activity and that kind of stuff. But I would submit to you and urge you that it's essential to preserve the term supernatural to acts of God alone inasmuch as only God is truly super, that is beyond the natural, that is the created. So technically, demonic beings are natural in the sense that they're not God. But obviously, we want to make distinctions between, say, demonic activity as the, the water being disturbed in the book of John and an angel come down, in that case, an angelic activity. We want to make distinctions between demonic and angelic activities and then the activities of natural forces like boiling the water or something like that that might make it disturbed. I understand that, but I would submit that it's better maybe to use the word angelic if it's an angelic being or paranormal or demonic if it's a demonic being and save supernatural for God alone. The reason that matters is not going to be so relevant tonight or this afternoon to a great extent, but I, I do another presentation called Miracles of Philosophy, a Theology, and an Apologetic. And there I go into more, link of, uh, more in depth as to why I think it matters that we preserve the definition of miracle and supernatural to acts of God alone. So let me just go on to give you that. A, a miracle then would be an act of God. But more specifically, as Norm Geiser argues in his chapter that he wrote in the book, In Defense of Miracles, A Comprehensive Case for God's Action in History. And by the way, this book, the first chapter in this book is from the then atheist Anthony Flew, who was a Humean philosopher. So if you're familiar with philosophy enough to know that generally when this question of miracles come up, David Hume's name invariably comes up. Well, how do you answer David Hume's objection against miracles and that kind of stuff? So Anthony Flew is a 20th century atheist philosopher who was a if you will, a disciple of David Hume, gives his case against miracles in the first chapter. And then the balance of the book are various theologians and philosophers and apologists responding. So Norm Geisler says, A miracle is a divine intervention into the natural world. It is a supernatural exception to the regular course of the world that would not have occurred otherwise. Lewis Berry Chafer, who was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, at which Norm Geisler taught for, for a decade, and I went, couple of years before I ended up going back to university, adds more to the definition. Though miracles are wonders in the eyes of men and display the power of God, their true purpose is that of a sign. They certify and authenticate a teacher or his doctrine. And so as I mentioned, you can get the slide deck, Miracles of Philosophy, Theology, and Apologetics. So what is science? Well, we have to distinguish different uses of the term science between how the ancients and medievals generally use the word in English translation and then how we today use the word most of the time, at least in my hearing. In ancient and medieval, by ancient I'm thinking of like Aristotle, medieval I'm thinking Aquinas. Here, science is any area of study and body of knowledge whose truths can be reduced to the first principles of that area. So that allows for the fact that you have botany, or you've got astronomy, or you've got history. All of these are disciplines. They're sort of subsets of reality that we can focus on, and each one of them is a science. Well, perhaps surprisingly to many modern ears, then theology would be a science. And I bring this up, and I make a big deal out of it, as you'll see as we go along in a moment, because too many people in our culture today are conditioned to think that by virtue of the use of the word science, you've automatically excluded any truths about reality that fall beyond the purview of the tools and methods and protocols and data points of the natural sciences. 
That's, that, it just depends on whether you're reading a medieval scholastic or an ancient Greek. When they use that word in English translation, whether they mean the same thing you think of or I think of when we hear that word used so often. So in this regard, it's not only would areas like physics be regarded as a science, but also metaphysics and theology. In contemporary uses of the term, this is what we're going to kind of get at here as we go along, the term science has become difficult to define to everyone's satisfaction. And so you'll often hear uh, scientists or philosophers of science especially chide you if you make some comment about the scientific method because they'll quickly say, well, there's no such thing as the scientific method. There are methods that a lot of the sciences use that may vary in some important ways. So I'm not about to weigh in and give my opinion about what I think science ought to be as far as the uh, overall penumbra. But one relatively uncontroversial aspect of the definition of science, at least in my experience, is that it's confined to the study of the physical or material world, something that is susceptible to the tools. In this regard, then, while physics would be considered a science, metaphysics and theology would not. Whatever else I say from this point forward, in terms of disparaging some dimensions of what goes by the name science, don't hear me say anything that seems to call into question the viability of our sensory experiences. Surprisingly, perhaps, to some contemporary ears, the a prevailing view among philosophers since the ancient Greeks well into the scholastics and even beyond is that knowledge actually begins in the senses. Thomas Aquinas would say it this way, all knowledge begins in the senses and is completed in the intellect. And what I teach some of my students to do is say, well, if knowledge begins in the senses, then how do you get ethics or logic or God, for that matter, and theology out of what you see, hear, taste, touch, or smell? And I go, well, the first thing to do is take my classical philosophy course at the seminary that you can actually audit for pennies on the dollar. Now, the issue before us is whether there is any aspect of reality that is beyond the physical or material world and is thus beyond science in this contemporary sense of the term. So science by any other name. Some scientists insist that science and its methods are the only way to discover or measure truths about reality. And they maintain that miracles and the supernatural fall outside the scope of the scientific method. In effect, this amounts to saying that the miracles and the supernatural are not real. This view of science is often referred to as scientism. Scientism. So I'll throw that word around perhaps as we continue this presentation. Now, not all scientists hold to scientism. I can't think of the, what a person who does hold to scientism would be called. A scientismist doesn't sound right, right? And so not, I'm, I'm not disparaging scientists, certainly not disparaging uh, Hugh Ross, who's a consummate scientist, and is certainly not a practitioner of what we call scientism. For the most part, those who hold to scientism don't use that term to describe themselves. It's really a pejorative term. It at least originated as that way. It's the term that critics give to it, which is interesting because a lot of monikers that groups go by today are actually names given to them by their detractors. I think that's true of Methodists. They were called that way because of their fastidious attention to certain methods in their liturgy. Baptists were called Baptists because of their insistence on immersion. You know, so a lot of these kind of names that we go by, people just go ahead and absorb and just ab adopt them for themselves. Everybody's calling us that anyway. We might as well own up to the name. I don't know if that'll ever happen with scientism. But the fact that it, it is a uh, sort of a term of derision on some people's lips, certainly on mine, it's a way of uh, being derisive of this viewpoint, I still think it's appropriate. I mean, when you see T-shirts like, Science is my religion, 
These are just JPEGs from the internet that you can buy these t-shirts. In science, we trust, which is obviously a slam against in God we trust that we see on our money as Americans. How about science never sleeps? That's a, a backhanded uh, slap, if you will, to the idea of the scripture's testimony that God never sleeps. You know, so he's always watching and superintending his, his creation. How about uh, too stupid for science? Well, there's always religion there. Gets a little in your face. How about Darwin loves you? Again, a certain slap against Jesus loves you. Daniel Dennett, who is a philosopher, not a scientist, but is um, very interested in and utilizes the methods and tools of science very often in his, in his writings to some extent. He says, it's not scientism to concede the objectivity and precision of good science. See, so he's already trying to deflect that pejorative. Any more than it's history worship to concede that Napoleon did once rule France and the Holocaust actually happened. Those who fear the facts will forever try to discredit the fact finders. Well, of course, this is a straw man fallacy. Straw man fallacy is when you attack a caricature of your opponent's point of view. If I wanted to beat up Hugh Ross, then I can make a straw man that looks like Hugh Ross and then beat that up, and hopefully people won't notice that wasn't really him. Well, by parallel, you characterize and mischaracterize, rather, an argument, and then you defeat that argument and hope people don't know. That's actually not what the original argument was. Nobody in this debate is trying to say that the scientism that we criticize is tantamount to criticizing somebody who says Napoleon actually did rule France or the Holocaust really did happen. No, that's, that's just history or science. You know, it's not scientism. So that's a straw man fallacy. We're not criticizing the precision of good science. What is more, this ad hominem then doesn't really respond. That's an ad hominem. Well, those who fear the facts. I don't fear the facts. We dispute the facts, perhaps, and maybe I've got some facts wrong. I'm, I'm pretty certain I do, and I haven't discovered what those are. And I'll only discover what those are by some kind of hopefully charitable interaction with somebody else who can educate me enough to go, how? You, you don't realize you don't know what you're talking about. Oh, okay, thank you, and I've learned something. But to ad hominem this is not the way to go. Instead, the critic of scientism is disputing whether science alone is the arbiter of what constitutes facts in the first place, as he says there, and whether scientists are the only, quote, fact finders. That's what's in dispute. Is science the only way and method to tell us what a fact is and who fact finders are? And the ones who insist, yes, in some sense, are these scientismists that I'm going to be uh, criticizing here as we go along. So, in contrast to the other T-shirts, how about these? Scientism, just another false religion. Roll back at you, pal, who's wearing his scientism uh, T-shirt there. Or how about science, good, scientism, bad T-shirt that you can get off the Internet. So let's see some examples of scientism in action. First of all, at least one philosopher... Uh, A.J. Ayers, a very important uh, 20th century philosopher, his little tiny tome here, Language, Truth, and Logic, was for a short period of time incredibly influential until a glaring error was exposed by everyone, including to A.J. Ayers himself, and he more or less repudiated his thesis in Language, Truth, and Logic. But here's what he says. We mean also to rule out the supposition that philosophy can be arranged alongside the existing sciences as a special department of speculative knowledge. Now, you might want to, for the sake of uh, appreciating uh, how serious this claim he's making is, you might want to sweep uh, theology in that little category of philosophy. 
We mean to rule out the supposition that philosophy can be ranged alongside existing sciences as a special department of speculative knowledge. It goes on. There is no field of experience which cannot in principle be brought under some form of scientific law and no type of speculative knowledge about the world which is in principle beyond the power of science to give. The philosopher as analyst is not directly concerned with the physical properties of things. He is concerned only with the way in which we speak about them. In other words, the propositions of philosophy are not factual but linguistic. We're going to come back to these here in a moment. Daniel Dennett, in another source, Breaking the Spell, says, Perhaps some cancer cures are miracles. So, if so, the only hope of ever demonstrating this to a doubting world would be by adopting the scientific method with its assumption of no miracles and showing that science was utterly unable to account for the phenomena. Well, first of all, that wouldn't even follow logically. Just because your method fails to prove X doesn't mean that X then isn't true. It just may mean that there's something else about X that your method is somehow overlooking. John Shook, whom I had the opportunity to debate University of North Carolina at Greensboro some years ago, says this, philosophical naturalism undertakes the responsibility for elaborating a comprehensive and coherent worldview based on experience, reason, and science, and for defending science's exclusive right to explore and theorize about all of reality. Now, how about a scientism in action, a few scientists? Well, we all know and love Richard Dawkins here. He says, the presence and absence of a creative superintelligence, that's God, is unequivocally a scientific question, even if it is not in practice or not yet a decided one. Now, the difference between a question being answerable in principle and in practice, you could say, what if somebody tried to argue, well, Pluto, though it's been demoted from planet status, ought to be reinstated because it actually tastes like cookies and cream ice cream. Now, if somebody said that, you go, okay, well, in principle, you could know whether that's true or not. If there was some physical way to get to Pluto and get down and lick the planet, I suppose. In other words, in principle, you could do it. But in practice, you couldn't do it. It wouldn't be physically possible, really, to get there to do that. So that's what he means by, well, it may be in practice it hasn't been proven. But in principle, it's a scientific question. He says the same thing in another way in a much earlier work, The Blind Watchmaker, when he says, unlike some of his theological colleagues, Bishop Montefiore is not afraid to state that the question of whether God exists is a definite question of fact. Now, I want you to hang on to that quote in a minute because I'm going to put these two together and make comments about them when I come back to these. He says elsewhere in The God Delusion, there is an answer to every such question about God and miracles, whether or not we can discover it in practice, and it's strictly a scientific answer. The methods we should use to settle the matter in the unlikely event that relevant evidence would ever become available would be purely and entirely scientific methods. Marsh McNutt, who at the time was the editor of the journal Science, in this cover story with National Geographic, The War on Science. I don't know if you can see that, but notice some of the things that constitute a war on science. People who deny the moon landing and people who believe that evolution didn't happen. So in her mind, if you dispute evolution, you're on par with somebody who say, well, we never landed on the moon. Now, Marcia says this, science is a method for deciding whether what we choose to believe has a basis in the laws of nature or not. And then one last scientist, no, one penultimate scientist. I believe that anything, this is Peter Atkins, I believe that anything that has been reported reliably, anything, can be interpreted scientifically within the framework of modern science. This is a clip from uh, Peter Atkins' debate he did with uh, William Lane Craig in, in the late 90s in, in Atlanta, Georgia. And my wife 
then-girlfriend, Rebecca, and I were at that debate. There's a funny story about it that I won't take time to tell you, but maybe sometime afterwards we can tell about it. Just, I'll just give you this warning. If you watch this debate, you might want to hide the children at some point uh, as to who shows up on the camera there. That's all, all I'm going to say. We'll come back to that perhaps later. Stephen uh, Hawking and Leonard Mladenow in their book, The Grand Design, say this. How can we understand the world in which we find ourselves? How does the universe behave? What is the nature of reality? Where did all this come from? Did the universe need a creator? Traditionally, these questions are for philosophy, but philosophy is dead. Philosophy has not kept up with modern developments in science, particularly physics. So the reason philosophy is dead in their mind, and theology would be dead too, is because it falls beyond the boundaries of the methods and tools of science, which alone give us truths about reality is what the implication is. Our time for today has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Would you or your church be interested in having Pat speak or host an apologetics conference? Just give him a call. In Hawaii, that number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And while you're there on our website, take a look around. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. Use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio free to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, you can find a link to donate on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Hey, hey, hey.